Hello, welcome to Imperfect World. I'm your host, Christopher Hobson. In this episode, I speak with PC, a scholar and writer based in Melbourne, who has recently started a substack called Living Together Somehow. Our discussion commences with some pieces he wrote about the experience of tailgating and road rage and what we can take from this about how society is structured, how certain technologies operate, and also how they relate to certain cultural patterns and differences. From this, we have a wide-ranging discussion reflecting upon regulation, restraint, the challenges of living in a society built around extraction, and the potential for the practice of love as a solution. It is an open discussion based on a long friendship and working relationship, and it brings out some interesting reflections on what the good life can be in contemporary conditions. For more information, please check my Substack, imperfectnotes.substack.com, or I can be reached at info.hobson at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. So what I want to do is sort of think through our interaction with the world and how that's shaped and mediated through technologies. Uh, And I thought a good place to start talking about this would be with some of the writing you've done recently on tailgating. Mm. So a phenomenon which is very much a set of social interactions which uh, are profoundly shaped and determined uh, by technology. So when reading your piece, I was thinking of the famous Paul Virilio line about the invention of the shipwreck coming with the invention of the ship mm. and a similar type of thing, the car crash coming with the invention of the car. And so then traffic and tailgating also being consequences of the invention of of the car, but then also the the city planner. So it strikes me that tailgating as a certain type of behavior that emerges from a certain type of technology working and, and not working. So could you maybe talk a little bit about uh, these recent pieces of yours on, on tailgating and perhaps why you started thinking about them? I think that there's two different, there's two different points, I suppose. Um, but really the thing that opens it up for me is like there's a visceral experience and then there's a realisation that the visceral experience of being tailgated is also a cultural experience. I suppose like, you know, um, you know, I lived in Japan for three years and although I wasn't driving that much, the notion that there would be agro on the roads was just really anathema. Um, and then on returning to Australia that you become like really viscerally aware that there's a percentage of people <laughs> um, who just have not internalised a degree of civility which kind of allows everybody to play friendly and make nice so there's that in the background like why is this aggression directed towards strangers via a motor vehicle traveling at some speed where you're effectively inflicting the increased risk of injury and death on a group of strangers how is that assembled obviously by the technological systems, by techniques, whatever else, but also as something which is cultural at the same time. 
And in contrast, like why are there other cultures that are possible, which are also modern industrial cultures where there's gridlock traffic in which tailgating doesn't take place as a phenomenon like that. So that's really my, my entry point to it. Yeah, I think the, the cultural mediation aspect to it is, is really interesting. So, I mean, if we think about Japan, in Japan, people toot their horn to say thank you. All right. And so you have this completely different use of the same instrument. Mm. It's, it's no longer um, something of aggression. Yeah. It's to indicate thanks. That's right. Yeah. In, in, and in Australia, and I think in most of the Anglo-capitalist countries, the use of the horn is inconceivable except as an expression of frustration and aggression. And it's the, mm. it's the, only, it's the only word your car knows how to shout. <laughs> um, so we have like a very limited tonal vocabulary here with, the, with our vehicle choice. But, yeah, again, it has like a really distinct cultural meaning. So, well, then that's also part of the driving, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's another way of communicating. I suppose I had this like encounter with like there's always that moment when you're trapped in an economy seat on a long-haul flight where, you know, you genuinely are trapped and there's a set of dependencies whose complexity completely eludes your grasp. Like I don't know how to fly a plane. I don't know how to build a plane. I don't know how to like run an airline safely and make a plane, make planes fly safely routinely in relation to one another in terms of takeoff and landing and the global traffic of which they're a part. But when you are embarked on that plane as a passenger, you know, there's really only one proper way to handle the kind of deep sense of rising distress that can come at the moments where you realise that you are in fact trapped on like in a pressurised aluminium cylinder flying 11 kilometres above the surface of the earth. And that's the kind of like you give yourself over to your trappedness, I guess, and, and, and work with that constraint. And what's so conspicuous to me about the, the tailgater is that in, from a, you know, at a certain level of kind of um, systemicity, like something which is no different, a situation in which the only way for us to actually continue to move with one another and to be with one another is to do so with a degree of acceptance and civility that nonetheless there, right in your right in your rearview mirror, is a person who refuses the terms of engagement, which are the only possible terms which are enabled to keep it civil and to keep it safe. So, I'm really interested in like this enmeshment of the human factor and, and and the technical factor as well, and why these are always to me like cultural questions because they come back again. Like, why is the tailgater something which is so obviously part of our Anglo-capitalist world, um, and I think in many parts of Western Europe as well but far less so in a country like Japan. I can't speak for other driving cultures in other places. I mean, to take one more example from Japan, obviously, because I, I know it well, is you people here basically speed. Mm. So there's there's kind of like a cult, there's, not, there's a norm when driving that you can basically speed 10 to 20 kilometers over the speed limit. And there are speed cameras and there are police, but it's not that common. And it's actually a situation where because everybody is driving above the speed limit, if you drive the speed limit, it can actually be a bit dangerous. Mm. And so there's this really interesting kind of like self-regulation because everybody speeds, but they speed in like quite a sensible way. Mm. So the speed limit is 50, but, you know, really it should be about 60 or 70, right? So people drive about 60 or 70. And 
I, I, I contrast this with Australia where everything is regulated, mm. right? And driving is built around uh, we don't trust you mm-hmm. uh, and we will regulate you into compliance. And with regulation enforcing uh, civility, mm. you end up with a very brittle type of yeah. civility. Yeah. So uh, something like tailgating is kind of in this grey zone where mm. it's it's allowable or you can get away with it. Mm, absolutely. Whereas you cannot express your rage against the speed cameras mm. And 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 so you have these kind. Of, I'm not I'm not sure where I'm really going with this, but you see, you have these the ways these different social practices mm. lead to different types of manifestations. Yeah. Yes. I and it's circular, isn't it? Because like the the the, the presence of the the like highly visible external compliance injunctions and the speed cameras and the speed limits. Etc. Never allow most people a space where they internalize restraint and civility. So, for precisely the same reasons, you know, a big stick is forever necessary. Um, in a different culture, which is like completely intelligible, we could have something where you know the the the, the horse was not so tightly bridled, and then would have to learn a measure of its own responsibility and control for its own comportment. But this is something which, like, I think goes, like, very deep here. I don't quite, I don't pretend to fully understand it, and I think that you would probably have to spend 10 years, like, writing, like, a very very complex social and cultural history of Australia or, for that matter, other countries in the Anglo-capitalist world to really understand the precise reasons because this. I think there's so many that they are. But nonetheless, for me, like, it's a, a contemporary instantiation of what seems to me to be, like, a refusal of participation with where we are in the community of faith, which is why I sort of go back to the metaphor of being on board the plane, you know, like we really, the only way that we, where it's possible for us to get along and live well with one another is for us to embrace, embrace a degree of constraint and restraint. And yet in precisely these conditions, the exact same culture has produced a percentage of individuals who are unable and unwilling to <laughs> express this. We can see exactly the same thing going on since COVID's hit um, in countries, in- including and especially the United States, but here as well, where there's a percentage of people who are incensed by COVID regulations and so on and so forth and will take out their aggression on strangers and service people who ask them, for example, to wear a mask or those kinds of things. So this is a kind of a very profound problem in the culture. Which I don't have easy an easy um, easy problem to an easy response to. Pardon me. On the on the the plane analogy, just to push back a little bit, there is a problem of, of plane rage as well, right? Yeah, it does happen. So you 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 have similar, you know, perhaps it's not as common as uh, tailgating, but you have aggressive behavior mm. towards, um, air, you know, air attendants and also to other passengers on planes. Mm. And so you do actually have a portion of people who don't, don't get along. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you have people resist in different ways. 
and maybe that context of the plane is one where it's it's more apparent the limited uh, capacity you have to control your situation compared to roads where it appears like you can turn anywhere or something, right? Absolutely. But, yeah, I mean, even in that context, you still have quite a lot of uh, different behavior. Yeah, there's a spectrum of behavior. I suppose like in like in a, in a world of in a world of complex systems we have to live with each other somehow and among the people with whom we have to try to live there are assholes <laughs> so in a world of complex systems we also have to live with assholes um and that's really like that's always to me that's like that's that's a question about the the enmeshment of the technical and the cultural because I can in in my thinking I can't extricate one one from the other um let me, I mean, I think that what I would like to do is the way that we've been discussing it, there is a sort of risk of heading in a direction of effectively these are problems with uh, Western slash Anglo cultures. Yeah, which is also not true. And, and yeah, so I thought. Like I th- Japan as well, yeah. Yeah, so I thought a really interesting counterpoint would be the way mobile phone mm. technologies are used in public spaces in Japan. Mm. And and here I'm thinking of uh, two examples, each with, I think, suggest different things. The first is the way that on public transport in Japan, there is a strong norm of not speaking on the phone mm. or playing, uh, you know, with a speaker. And this has really a high level of, of compliance mm. and leads to a very different experience mm. compared to being on public transport in Australia or in England, to give two examples I know of. Yeah, yeah. And, and so what's interesting, right, is you have the introduction of the same technology but you have different norms introduced with it, which have led to very different types of behavior being accepted and unacceptable. Then the flip is in Japan, if you buy a a mobile phone, all phones are are installed with a shutter sound Mm. on the cameras, Mm. which you cannot disable. And this is to prevent people taking upskirt photos of of girls, uh, especially on public transport. Mm. And so, what's amazing here is this sense that the we cannot create a norm mm. or change behaviour. Mm. So we have a, a technological solution, mm. <laughs> right? Yeah. And such a, you know, you have these two examples pointing in such different directions because the the first example, you really see the way that you can actually create changes in behaviour which lead to overall kind of positive impacts. But then there's mm. a sense of we can't stop men from taking photos of of, of girls so we're going to mandate this technological solution, Mm. 
which doesn't even solve it, right? It just leads leads to them finding different mm. ways of doing it. Mm. Uh, it's come full circle. So, there was even a Japanese tourist who got done at the Australian Open for, 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 for he'd come here to do precisely this at the Australian Open. So it's a, a moment of cultural translation there. Um, and, and was busted and was all through the news media and, of course, orientalised as some, you know, yeah. So, yeah. So it's interesting the way different cultures allow different possibilities and, and the, way, the way that the similar technologies can then play out differently with different consequences. And mm. I think, mm. you know, one of the reasons this is very interesting to think through is the way that there is this sort of sense of inevitability that comes with uh, so many new mm. technologies. So mobile phones mean this and the way they actually uh, instantiate themselves in, in the real mm. world is, is much more complex mm. and diverse than perhaps we uh, tend to appreciate at first glance. Yeah, and and yet at the same time, I think one of the things which is so interesting, particularly about there's there's so many things that one could say about smartphones, because like, I think it's really like it's the most important single technological advancement in communicate um, communication and computing in the 2010s, and also that it was like not really fully anticipated. You know that when Apple released the iPhone initially, it was supposed to be an iPod that could also make phone calls. Um, and now virtually nobody makes phone calls and nobody has iPods anymore. So that even Apple is the, the sort of like the progenitor of the, what became the paradigm of the smartphone um, was unable to anticipate like how the technology was used over the decade. But I think it's so clear to me that it has become like the new dominant mode of pervasive um, computing across most societies. And you can get the statistics, I can find them for you. But the penetration of smartphone use all across the world, even in the developing world, is like up towards 80-something percent now, and I think it's higher. Um, it's, you know, it's de facto a human right to both have and possess a phone, and especially since the onset of COVID, one can't even go anywhere, certainly in Melbourne, without carrying your phone because it has your vaccine certification on it, blah, 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 blah. So without anybody necessarily meaning or intended to, we've ended up in this entanglement with this completely pervasive and transformative technology um, and yeah, absolutely. We might end up with particular like uh, cultural pathologies and cultural problems, but there's nonetheless at the sort of a systems level, there'd be a set of things which we could objectively point to. And I think that like one of the things which I find really appealing about um, Shoshana Zuboff's notion of surveillance capitalism is like, regardless of what we do with our phones, you know, all of this data is being processed in some ways by the different Silicon Valley corporations if you're a Westerner. Um, and so we can we can think and say what we want, and even if we are or aren't on Facebook, whatever else, there isn't a person here who doesn't have some level of enmeshment. For example, with with Google systems or with Amazon, uh, with Amazon server, you know, AWS and so on and so forth. So that we really are this kind of like we are a digital society, which means that the breakdown between like the material and digital is completely broken down. Like we're completely enmeshed in it, whether we like it or not. But then at the same stage, we are still completely reliant upon that, that underlying material reality, which, which sometimes gets lost. Yeah. You know, we are reliant upon lithium being dug up, cobalt being dug up and, and, and so on. And, you know, these have very tangible realities. Yeah. And a lot of this metaverse discussion, for instance, totally um, sort of foregoes this, this underlying 
uh, material reality. And I think, you know, one of the, the, the big things that have come in the last year or so with all the uh, shortfalls mm. with uh, semiconductors mm. has been this really late realisation that, yeah, actually, you know, these technologies are made and built with certain things yeah. uh, and we need to attend to them. And also in certain places like them, like with the ex- expansion of Amazon's uh, server farms, most of them happen to be located in Virginia, um, which means most of them are still coal-fired. So, you know, a huge part of the computing power of the US for circumstantial reasons um, ends up being coal-fired. Um, and secondly, we can see this materiality and this locatedness if we think about something like the City of London or if we think about Wall Street, not only because of, you know, the way in which all of those different offices have set up, set up and, you know, all of the different trading that goes on there, but with the the way that like all of the expertise and networks of people are located in those two metropolises and that those things are just not something which you can just pick up um, and move to, to Newark or Suffolk. But I mean, that's what people are going to try to do now with with shifting to work from home as a potential ongoing reality. Yeah, I think that's the the experiment about whether or not these uh, interpersonal lived relations are meaningful or not. Yeah, and as you say that, like I can't help but think about my own institution and like the two things that spring to mind is first of all that like the people that govern the university have just spent like 20 years and billions of dollars building bricks and mortar campuses, which um, we're now told that we can't have access to and may not use, which like, begs all kinds of questions about their future and what they're for and so on and so forth. Um, and then I was also reflecting on how I was feeling about that and what the pattern of work and the pattern of life means to be working from home. Um, and there seems like this, do you think like this, there's some tradable and untradable things which go on there. Like, Undoubtedly, I feel like I can be more productive and have enormous flexibility at home. And most of working in an office was schlepping between meetings, which are a waste of time or what's worse, like commuting during peak hour, which was like inconvenient um, and slightly dangerous for myself on a bicycle and all of these other different things. So undoubtedly there's benefits. And if you look at the like urban you know, aggregations now, um, in most countries, the capital cities are completely gridlocked and far too large, and most of the reason why that's the case is because of location to office space, um, which creates commuting with all of these different things that we've been reckoning with since, like, the late 18th century, right? Um, but at the same time, like, how do you feel? I feel very alienated from my workplace now. Um, and there's, uh, there's other complicated reasons for that, but I think not sharing an office space and not having the routine of going into and from work and having the boundary of the, the office space as the space of work and the home space as the space of home raises all kinds of other issues. Perhaps we'll adjust over time. Yeah, I mean, I think there is a sense of veering from one extreme to the other. And I, I feel sceptical about the the likelihood of uh, people coming out of this experience and saying, cool, let's continue working from home all the time. But also I think it's allowed us to, to put in a different perspective what is quote-unquote necessary mm. in terms of an office setting. Uh, it strikes me for better and worse, you'll probably end up in the middle mm. with uh, companies and organizations 
wanting work in the office a few days a week. That would seem like a better balance, but the the one point where that really breaks down is to do with physical space. So if you have the the physical space and you have to pay for it full time, mm. then that encourages a push towards it it being used full time. Yeah. The flip is is you're stuck in a permanent type of hot desk dynamic, which uh, is kind of the worst of all worlds yeah, in I, a way, I, which is which is a lot of the you know a lot of the the kind of contemporary phenomena, right? You get the the, the worst of, of both sides. I, I already lived this reality, you know, at, at my previous um, place of work. So in a lot of ways, that um, they were just ahead of the curve by several years in certain respects. Um, and yeah, it's the worst of both worlds because it, it, it did, it included horrendous car commutes to like very distant campuses in terrible traffic conditions. Um, but also, yeah, with the removal of permanent offices um, and with these completely dead campuses where you just kind of went there and you paid $5 for a terrible coffee and you didn't really bump into anyone because no one was there. You went and you did your business and then you drove home from the lonely car park along the kind of like, you know, cold boring freeway back to your house. Um, so yeah, there's a lot, <laughs> there's a lot in there, which we should really think twice about here. I, I feel like, um, the, the two things I was thinking about was like returning back to this idea of commuting, which brings me back to gridlock and brings me back to, to, to the tailgater, um, of just how completely frustrating that experience is and how far it is from what most people would consider as an optimum of human existence. And yet the way all of the different incentives and the reward structure are still pointing towards some form of commuting as being some kind of an ideal. So that regardless of whatever, to, to whatever extent, to whatever extent it is a cultural manifestation that like we continue to want to produce and reproduce both gridlock and the tailgater. So I wonder about the kind of the wishes which are animating those different things. Like what do we want when we want to commute into our offices? Um, and what what are we missing out on when we don't commute into our offices and and, and be with one another and our workmates anymore? Something I I spend a lot of time reflecting on in my work, uh, also just in my I guess my personal thought, if you can make that distinction, is I I'm hesitant to be as confident in in understanding mm. how it was previously. And I'm also very cautious of uh, looking back on golden days whenever mm. they may have been. But I, I do feel collectively our societies do not spend too much time thinking about the collective good mm. and the good life and what constitutes yes. a good life. And one point I would really emphasize when I talk about good life is uh, implicit within the word life is, is living and living with yeah, other yeah. people and other things. And so we, we think about, you know, what is good for the individual, what is good for myself, we spend a lot of time thinking about what mm. is good for me. I, I sense that we spend less time thinking about what is good 
for us what is a good life. And as a result, or one thing that flows from that, is that the collective choices we are making are ones which are not in reference to what is meaningful and it is shaped by what is Mm. easy, what is considered economically valuable and this I think leads us to so many ways of living I was about to say suboptimal, but then I think the the language of suboptimal is this precisely the type of thinking which yeah, helps right. point yeah. us in that direction, right? That's right, yeah, because part of what it is is a culture that does what is expedient in order to optimise based on something which is like, you know, implicitly just to kind of continue the expansion and acceleration of the capitalist system, right? More and faster, sooner. <laughs> Why? Um I think in terms of intergenerational experience, and I'm referring to um, like Richard Sennett's The Corrosion of Character here, um, which I've been reading, that um, for, for those which would be sort of somewhere between our grandparents and parents' generation who grew up absolutely within what you might call like a Keynesian system. So we're still dealing with the working class and middle class of the OECD countries in that sort of like period of time from the post-war up until neoliberalism really kicked in, where the pattern of life was extremely routine and where people's life just accreted slowly. You know, you went to work and you worked in the same company for 30 years and little by little you paid off your mortgage and little by little you raised your kids in a neighbourhood and little by little you got to the stage where you could retire and then you could enjoy all of these things which kind of just like this sort of slow wedge of life, which on the level of like a narrative amounts to a sort of a kind of a meaning that there was like this beginning and a middle and all of these different sort of steps which added up to something. Senate's writing in the late 90s and what he notices is the way that at least in the US and England, people had traded all of that reliability and routine for this new value of flexibility and that this was a kind of like the neoliberal virtue of like say 20, 25 years ago. But I think we can see that that's really crumbled away now Um, and what we've got in exchange is no longer even flexibility or like that's the privilege of the elite but really what we have is precarity. Um, and just scrambling for an existence. Um, And in the context of that, like, it's very difficult for people, especially younger people growing up in it, to have a time to really reflect and build the values which they nonetheless crave a lot. And I see this a lot in a lot of the different students I teach, particularly undergraduates. They're extremely hungry for value, for purpose and meaning, but a lot of what they find surrounding them in their everyday existence is deficient in being able to give it to them. And at the same time, they don't seem to be sleeping well. They seem to be very overwhelmed and overloaded with the various work that they're doing and don't seem for the most part to have been able to access what I still think was a generational privilege and experience, which we had um, as like upper middle-class white kids growing up in Australia, like going through this undergraduate period 25 years ago. Um, where a lot of it was just, you know, free-range experimentation and um, you can fuck around and it and be inconsequential. So I guess I'm trying to respond to your question and say that, like, I think there are really important generational experiences which are happening now, which are also preventing many, but not all people, but a percentage of people from forming 
at forming and holding down these, these durable and important and, and existentially meaningful values, which they nonetheless deeply crave and are searching for. So Wendell, Be- Wendell Berry, uh, the American uh, writer, talked about extractive society and the way our societies uh, are built around limitless consumption and also a mentality of extraction. Mm. And so you have this taking without giving or without returning. Mm. And, you know, he was thinking and writing a lot in the context of farming. And so his analogy was, 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 was very much that this ultimately leads to uh, soil, which, you know, where you can't continue to... To, to grow yeah 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 that's um, yes yes <laughs> and and i and i think of on sort of a, a a larger scale the way on 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 one layer over a couple of hundred years we have this shift from religious and traditional societies to modern societies which kind of uh, continue to extract from those traditional uh, sources mm. without replenishing them. Yeah. Yep. And then another layer with a similar type of dynamic in terms of um, extraction from the kind of Keynesian system. Mm. Mm. And on both layers, I feel like we're reaching a point where there's uh, I wish I could get my analogy right, but you know the equivalent of peak oil. Mm, yeah. Right? yeah, we're running out of we're running out of stuff to extract. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and so we we're not actually creating the conditions yeah. for um, restoring or rebuilding the foundations or the conditions within which we can have these values develop. Yeah, wow. I, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm along for the ride all the way on this one. And I'm thinking um, all the way back to the second book of Plato's Republic, um, all the way towards um, Levi-Strauss's Tristropics in the mid-1950s. And, you know, in book two, like all of the people who assembled as part of the dialogue down at Piraeus having a chat about these things so that we basically got this, we have this choice, right? And I'm fascinated that, you know, two and a half thousand years ago, Plato was clearly able to see that there was this kind of like um, gambit or a wager and a point of bifurcation implicit in civilization, even just for Athenian civilization. And it's like, well, you know, we can be, we can all be vegetarian and um, we can hang out with our families and eat olives and play the lute and the flute, whatever else, or um, we can have call girls and bling and eat meat. But if we do, then we're going to need to have a city. If we're going to have a city, then we're going to have a division of labor. And if we have a city and a division of labor, then it's going to expand. And if it expands, then we're going to actually have to take resources. And if we do that, then there's going to have to be war and extraction and domination. And the end of that little part of the dialogue ends ruefully with everyone saying, well, we all like bling and core girls, don't we? You know, <laughs> ha, ha, ha. Um, so there's a, there's, there's, there always has been a choice there. And there's always been a strong set of drives leading us to be seduced by meat um, and by urban life and by jewelry and all of the things which go along with it that we don't really want to think about. Then at the other end, and of then this- di- 
So I was going to say, and then displacing that it's a choice. Yeah, well, this is, um, and not only displacing the choice, but displacing the, 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 because this is where, so the, where I wanted to get to the point with, um, with Levi Strauss and Tristra Peak is that like his essential condemnation of Western culture is that we're just emetic cultures. Like we just vomit, we vomit ourselves all over the world and we shit all over the world and we travel on planes to all of these different countries and we just vomit and shit everywhere and then fly home. And all of Western civilization has just been basically vomiting and shitting on the rest of the world. <laughs> um, and, you know, like I can see that like the Romans right in the middle of like somewhere between like a little closer to Plato, but between between Plato and Levi-Strauss talking about Brazil in the 1950s, um, just with the Romans, like literally inventing vomitoriums and, you know, like really going all in for um, this disgusting culture of like extraction and consumption. I don't know. Um, the, 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 I, I, I feel like we're, we're still in it. And especially as an Australian now, like still so subjected to the political economy and the cultural mindset of of yeah of, of extraction of extraction but which is also consumption but which is also an emetic culture which basically just wants to tear shit out of the ground you know like um you know build things up and then just like shit everywhere and then move on to the next place um yeah well i mean this this connects to uh, a motto or an idea which which i've thought about a lot as i've been working on technology which is Facebook's famous motto when they got going, right? Move fast and break things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? But those things are like basic aspects of the way our societies yeah. are There's communities stuck together, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, move fast and break things, right? And this, this, this lack of care mm. uh, and the idea that breaking things is something uh, commendable. And I think implicit with all of this is this, this um, you know, ref- refusal to accept limits mm. and this um, continued expectation of, of growth. And I think this is where the extraction metaphor i mean it's not even really a metaphor yeah. right yeah it's not even a metaphor um, no it's, it, it's it's literally a metaphor because it, it, <laughs> it's really how we've yeah, been right. living for thousands of years i think it's a really really powerful one because the idea of extraction is yeah at some point there's none left yeah right so i'm trying to work out what the societal equivalent of peak oil would be i mean the but yeah the, the, the cultural dystopia i'm always dealing with as a white australian has always been mad max so, the, you know, the Mad Max dystopias animate my thinking on technology more than anything else. Um, I think because I watched them all as a kid, apart from the one that was impossible for me to watch because it came out more recently. <laughs> um, but if you, want it, if you want a trajectory for this thinking, you know, where, you know, the verb to aggress means to move forward um, and the wish to sort of like move forward and dominate in this way by continuing to like take it up and take things into yourself and then vomit things out and then move on, then of course that's where, that's where it leads, right? And we know it. And we know it, and we've known this for some time. We've known this since at least the 1950s, right? Like, and we've been told this by the the, the, the most interesting and perceptive critics in the culture. But we persist in this behaviour, <laughs> knowing full well that this is the case. And indeed, maybe like you know, without really having ever watched Mad Max or having gone through industrial modernity, Plato's already pointing at something which is inherent to 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 to, to the good life, the life of the citizens in the polis, right? 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's also this uh, this this constant challenge of of, of uh, structure and agency. Yep. Right. And how do we act in more intentional and um, ways which can generate more positive dynamics mm. in the context of structural forces which encourage us to replicate the structures that are causing so many of these bads? Yeah. It's a simple question with an easy answer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's what's spring to mind straight away is that like I think that there really is a civility in civil aviation, and if you wanted to design a global system to transport people, look at how few people die or are injured by the civil aviation system globally each year. In contrast, if you look at the road system, it still kills 1.3 million people a year, you know, reliably, and that's down from what it was in the 1970s somewhat, but it still kills at one point. So it's like the first thing would be like, don't design a system which is going to kill 1.3 million people a year. And then the very presence of civil aviation shows us that it, in fact it is possible to build such systems. So there's there's a, there's a system design question, but then there's also, as we know, momentum and sunk costs and path dependencies and all this sort of stuff, right? As for this, the social and the subjective factor, what do you think? I, I struggle with this every day. Well, just building on what you said about the example of, of, of uh, air travel. So, I mean, it's not just that. Right, and as societies, we collectively make decisions about what we deem to be uh, dangerous mm. and what we deem to be acceptable risks. And this is a profoundly not scientific uh, dynamic. And collectively, we come to assume certain risks while avoid other risks, which from a numerical perspective mm. are actually far more yeah. dangerous. Yeah. yeah. Yes. But we have collectively internalized them. Absolutely, yeah. And in a way, what's one aspect of what's happening with COVID is a real-time discussion about how we understand the risk that it poses. Mm. And we don't think about the, the risk that um, a bad flu season poses no. because yeah. we have uh, collectively internalized yeah, right. that as an acceptable risk yeah, right. in the same way that we have collectively internalized driving yeah. where we're literally, you know, basically any adult who does a bit of minimal training mm. can drive around a big pile of metal that can wantonly kill people. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that cannon is indeed used as a deadly weapon, extremely deadly weapon. Yeah. And we, we internalize and accept that. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I, I know I've my work on, on nuclear energy really. This is what I wanted to ask you, yeah. You know, really, really revealed this yeah. because you end up in this situation where nuclear energy requires a more thoughtful 
engagement with the risks that we're willing to take than, than what we're collectively able, of do, able to do. Mm. So you end up in scenarios like what you have in Germany where it's let's turn off all the nuclear so we can turn on more coal. And become more dependent on Russia. Yep. And so actually like we, we weigh up um, the, the dread posed by uh, the, the possibility of a nuclear accident and and to be clear that you know the a major nuclear accident is is a non-trivial non-trivial event mm. but at the same stage the the direct and indirect deaths caused from air pollution by the use of coal is is also very quantifiable yeah and then yeah like the carbon dioxide emitted by burning coal as well right there's this there's, there's not even there's no comparison we could i'm i'm really interested to kind of like set up a contrast between like the past two, 20 years in the OECD countries, and I pick on them because they're the usually the countries that have the resources and thus the agency to make a lot of meaningful choices about these different things between the responses to the, the projected threat of Islamist terror, um, what happened in the global financial crisis, and then Fukushima as one, you know, these, these three different things here, and then COVID. So if you have those five, four different points over the last 20 years, each of us, I think, has, like, really interesting things to talk about, how the way in which that, like, risk and risk apprehension is, is, and maybe this is like thematic to the conversation, like always caught up in techniques, but that there are kind of like cultural and societal, really deep and rich and important cultural and societal reasons by which certain places and certain times metabolize and internalize certain risks as trivial and non-trivial in certain ways. You know what I mean? And yeah, I would agree with all of that. And just to extend it, you also see in these situations the way that actually we can collectively mobilise significant capacity to act yes. when deemed necessary. I think this is what Greta Thunberg is precisely what she's so fucking angry at us all for, right? <laughs> Why are we prevaricating, right? We, we have very good, strong evidence about like the anthropogenic origins of climate change and we know very well what we must do urgently. It is necessary, and we must act now. Yeah, but actually, I would. I would, I mean, as somebody who has quite easily, and I would use that word uh, carefully, <laughs> uh, accepted the the science of climate change. Mm. You know, one of the things I've been increasingly thinking from just the work I've been reading and engaging with, but also the experience of, of the pandemic and really the experience of living through the interpretation of science, contested science in real time yeah. is the danger that comes from certitude. Yeah. yeah. And the danger that comes from the confidence that we understand incredibly complex systems and that our models of the world are accurate representations. Mm -hmm. And with the pandemic, it's, it's, so, it's so difficult to say, uh, you know, were some of the models in terms of projected deaths, were they accurate but forestalled by our collective behaviour yeah. and collective responses to those models or were they 
profoundly wrong, right? And there's not really an easy way of of demonstrating that. But, you know, in many ways, I think during the pandemic, we have seen the way that science is 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 deeply deeply contested and deeply socially conditioned mm. and the limits of our models and our abilities to predict and understand what is happening and to extend that to climate change i think actually puts uh puts us in a slightly uncomfortable position mm. in terms of I think it also then forces us to question whether we should have such complete confidence in this is what will happen. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Right. And I, I worry about, about certitude mm. and... I just see the world constantly hitting us over the head, reminding us that we don't know what's going on. And yet we say, this is what is going to happen. And one of my, increasingly one of my concerns or doubts with the climate movement, and I say this as somebody who's very concerned about these issues, is ending up in a very deep political sort of situation where uh, climate science tells, tells us this, so we must do this, mm. rather than seeing there is uh, a space for a set of discussions about what is meaningful, what is good, how we weigh up costs and, and benefits of, of different trajectories. Uh, and and I and uh, you know also with the kind of the increasing polarization that you get mm. in these types of discussions is when you get that level of polarization, right? The problem is both sides end up being wrong. <laughs> I think it just comes back to this issue of where do we find the resources to address and resolve uh, some of these these big problems? And perhaps maybe this is a a good uh, avenue to connect it to something you're interested in, which I think is interesting in the context of our discussion. Mm which is love. Mm. So you talk about the need and importance of, of love in terms of social relations. And when I was thinking about your work on this, I was 
reflecting upon uh, Simone Vale, mm. who mm-hmm. I know you're not a, not necessarily a fan of, but in her work, she identifies love as very much connected to attention. Mm. And she sees attention as something difficult to do and something which requires active energy and focus. Yeah. So I have here uh, two quotes from her, I think, to convey this. The first is, attention taken to its highest degree is the same thing as prayer. It presupposes faith and love. Absolutely unmixed attention is prayer. Mm. And then the second quote, the authentic and pure values, truth, beauty, and goodness in the activity of a human being are the result of one and the same act, a certain application of the full attention to the object. Mm. That's really beautiful. I mean, Simone Vale, like that the kind of mysticism that she's, I suppose it's mysticism, um, that she's involved with. I, yeah, I, I find that difficult to, I find it difficult to access that mode of thinking. Um, and there's other people like, you know, Hildegard of Bingen and Meister Eckhart that other people really seem to get a lot from that. I, I can't seem to, I can't seem to access grace, Chris. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, I can't speak too much for that, but I'm, I'm really personally really interested. I, I think that like love's got a really bad rap, um, you know, thanks not only to priests, but also to Hollywood. Um, and that we really need to kind of degenitalize and um, decouple in the double sense the, the concept from a lot of the kind of the really ordinary um, and terrible uh, practices which we might associate with like Valentine's Day, for example. I'm really interested in the Christian idea that I'm interested in is the Christian idea of love as service. Um, and I think that this is really something in Western cultures which has sorely gone missing. Um, and it's interesting that... Um, in the past week I was re-listening to um, an old great lecture of Quentin Skinner's on what is freedom and that he pointed back to, to that, um, that, you know, um, freedom consists in true service as a kind of traditional English Protestant idea. Um, and also that weirdly um, Adam Curtis kind of raised this in his discussion um, with uh, Russell Brand as well, that like really what's missing from contemporary existence is like a sense of service and that this is something which could be developed for young people. But I'm also really interested in the kind of um, love which expects nothing in return. Um, and there's ways which you can really like overcomplicate these things, um, you know, like this guy, whatever. You, know? um, you, can, you can spend like 150 pages with a geometrical method trying to get to this idea of the intellectual love of God. But I think that, you know, like just the simple love of, of sunshine um, is, 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 is something which I really grounded in. Like, I really, I mean that, like, we don't need to kind of like posit some kind of a loving deity or, um, the loving of some particular other human person to just kind of like learn to appreciate and have a basic love for the world as it is in this moment. Yeah. And, but I think to connect that back to, to Vale, I think this is what's interesting is, is the way that attention is something active. Mm. It requires effort. You have to attend to it, yeah. Yeah, and in the same way that uh, being a citizen takes effort. And so this is, again, moving away from this extractive model. Yeah, yeah. 
I think where it gets complicated is within this, say, Christian understanding of, of love, you are able or you are encouraged to to love without any um, confidence in that being reciprocated mm. because you have that higher faith and confidence in the existence of God and God's will. Mm-hmm. In a, a world without belief, then you end up being a chump. <laughs> I don't, but I mean, the whole thing is like to take the example, I'm like, I'm, I'm a heliocentrist, you know, like I can posit the existence of the sun and I can point to it. And I don't necessarily have to like invent like text to sort of explain and justify the existence of the sun or why it shines and why the sun's shining upon the earth is like the basis of all life on earth, which is the basis for the goodness that I experience as a human. You know what I mean? Like, I suppose what I'm trying to, to get at is that there's, there's something very simple, which we can already have a direct, we can have a direct experience of which might, might already be love. Um, and so the problem precisely, especially for us as contemporary Westerners, but not only Westerners, it's not just a Western problem, is that this very simple experience of the pleasure of sunshine is like clouded over with all of these different conceptualizations which are preventing us from like really seeing the reality that's right in front of our eyes. Well, I mean, I think that is actually not a new problem, right? No. So... Can I... I don't want to trip you up halfway through, but I was thinking about this, like, in terms of, like, I can, where I get to, where I struggle with, right, I can think about this with my loved ones and I can think about this with my friends and I feel like I can join grassroots organisations that can develop a lot of these different things well together now in the contemporary period. But if I was thinking back to a moment in the conversation 20 minutes ago or so where we, like, there's that that, that, that trapped feeling that we have, like, how do we... How do we practice? How do we practice this with the tailgater? How do we deal with assholes? <laughs> it's people who are stubbornly thus um, and won't be otherwise. The the logic of love would be to to simply to try. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right to to not ex- not expect any reciprocation. Yes. Yes, yes, and yes. And this is the work. And it's hard work, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It is. It, it's totally hard work. And, I mean, and to come back to the, the, the chump, right, I mean, this is also there in Tolstoy because who does Tolstoy end up venerating? It's the peasants, mm. right, who, who are chumps, right? They're, I mean, I'm being a bit. And he's also but, an aristocrat, right? Is this is another hmm. long-standing tradition of aristocrats like venerating the peasants? Yeah. And so, encouraging other regarding behaviour without incentives or without thinking in terms of incentives. Yeah, 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 yeah. Is. I think uh, a significant challenge and one of the ideas I was working through when I was talking about the the way that they thinks about attention is so that she is talking about attention as an action Mm -hmm. that requires effort. 
And I was contrasting that with how we collectively think about attention today, which is as a resource, mm. which is getting taken slash extracted yeah. Yeah. by social media companies and so on. Yeah. And so the way that we conceive of uh, attention is not something which is other regarding. It is ours which is being taken mm -hmm. rather than being something that we give to others or to the world. Yeah, yeah. That's right. And the person with the extractive mindset is such because of some kind of a deficit inside themselves. You go out and you try to get the thing which is missing from inside you or from missing from around you or missing from inside your house and you bring it inside your house or you put it inside yourself or wherever it is, in your mouth or in whatever hole you need to put it in to fill the lack, the lack in your heart and the lack in your soul, right? So I think but is it, is it, there's yeah. a, like the, the, what gets the ball rolling, I guess, is a certain mean-spiritedness towards ourselves and absence of generosity to ourselves. So the, the first thing we need to do is start being a whole lot more generous with ourselves and then try to be a lot more generous with other people. But this is very difficult work. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting reflecting on it now, the metaphor that, that I often use when I, when I talk about these kind of problems is, is this idea of being in a plane that has run out of fuel. Mm. Right? So you can keep on gliding for a while, but at some point, you're going to crash. <laughs> and I find it interesting that the metaphor that I use is still a technological metaphor. Mm, mm -mm. And the way that the frames that we end up using for thinking about these issues are ones which point us towards uh, machines, towards resources, towards economic terminology, all of these things which kind of reinforce a way of thinking and engaging in the world as um, individuals engaging in transactions and using objects yeah. to achieve purposes. Yeah, utility maximization, yeah, exchange of resources, all that stuff, yeah. Which is a different type of dynamic to the one that you're talking about mm. of... Um, engaging in behavior with no clear purpose or sense of what will come out of it. Yeah, trying to yeah, trying to be generous without expecting anything in return. That was my conversation with PC, recorded in February 2022. It has been produced with support from a grant by the Toshiba International Foundation and was edited by Peter Van Hosen. For more information, please check my website, christopherhobson.net, and my substack, imperfectnotes.substack.com. Thanks for listening to Imperfect World with Christopher Hobson. <laughs>